This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. In honor of the new Christopher Nolan movie, Tenant, coming out later this summer, supposedly right now August 13th, but that might change again, we decided to watch all 10 of Christopher Nolan's previously released films and rank them. So this episode is going to work very similar to the way our best picture decade by decade countdown goes, where we watch 10 movies at a time, we rank them, and then from there come up with a combined list of of how that goes. It's my own little personal methodology. And joining me today is Stephanie Pryor, first of which, thank you for joining me today. And second, uh, if you want to maybe talk about what it was like being able to watch all of Christopher Nolan's films in, in such a short order, and maybe your general thoughts on his work as a whole. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me again. Um, I was totally psyched to watch the gambit of Christopher Nolan films. I've always been a big fan of his, and I had some blind spots, so I was excited to to watch the ones that were missing from my scene list and also to rewatch some of my favorites um which we will get into later but i'm also just personally a huge batman fan so any reason to watch any batman film with you know exceptions to maybe one or two um i'm totally game so i'm ready yeah it's interesting we actually sort of started this by watching interstellar just because we hadn't seen it since it came out and then from there kind of grew from i was like hey let's just watch a couple more christopher nolan movies and then kind of the idea for this episode sort of took place. Uh, I spoke about this idea on a, a recent podcast, uh, the Life During Quarantine show when when Royce was on, and I talked about how a new topic is going to be going through a director's filmography that has maybe 10 movies exactly. And uh, Christopher Nolan, I think, was a, a perfect match for that. I originally want to tie this in directly with the Tenet release, but it went from you know an early July release to an end of July release. Now it's a mid-August release, and who knows when it actually is going to come out uh, due to theaters still not being open. Uh, so yeah, on top of the 10 movies we watched, we actually watched uh, one of his early short films, Doodlebug, which also stars the, the lead from Following. This was uh, a movie he made before that. I think it came out in, in 90 six or 97 and he made it when he was still at university he has a couple other shorts two of which uh, are just not viewable anywhere and then a last one that uh, we just weren't able to watch and it's kind of a documentary short and not quite the same way so we're kind of excluding that but uh, it was very interesting to sort of see you know doodlebug which plays with not time but different perspectives and things like that in a way that we can directly see how he grew as a filmmaker where there were several elements that became the seeds for his growth in later films. What did you think of that short? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great little snapshot uh, to see Christopher Nolan in, you know, his origins. It was like his origin story for us, I guess. Um, And you could definitely, you know, see him all over it and know, see little different things that you were like, Oh, I see how that's been like tied into this movie or that movie, even just like just small little things, camera angles and different ideas. So it was, it was a fun, cute little watch. And I liked how it ended. And it was only two minutes. So if you haven't seen it, uh, we watched it on the Criterion channel. I believe it's on YouTube. You can pretty much find it anywhere. Uh, and if you're a Christopher Nolan completist, definitely go and check that out. So I guess without further ado, we should get underway. What's our number 10 movie, Stephanie? So coming in at number 10 for us is Insomnia. 
Yeah. This is always the worst time of night for me. Too late for yesterday, too early for tomorrow. What do you want? I'm sorry about the tape recorder. I had to make sure you'd follow through. I know this is hard for you. I'll follow through. I've been thinking it over. I should tell him about Randy. I think that's a bad idea, Walter. But he's a patsy will. And besides, he deserves it. You should have heard the shit Kay told me about him, how he abused her. This was released in 2002. It's about two Los Angeles homicide detectives who are dispatched to a northern town where the sun doesn't get to, doesn't set, who have to investigate the methodical murder of a local teen. This is one that I hadn't seen before, so I was excited to watch it. And I was just slightly disappointed because I didn't find anything too reinvented for this film. It was pretty generic. I feel like it's probably his least Christopher Nolan film, at least for me. Um, I didn't feel like there was anything super wrong with it. I just didn't find it all that exciting. How about you? Yeah, I have seen this movie once before, so I, I am a bit more familiar with it, but I haven't watched it in well over a decade. I can't remember when I did watch it for the first time. I sort of liked it. I, I, I watched it after I had seen Memento. I don't know if I knew who Christopher Nolan was or connected that they were both by the same director. Uh, I, I just sort of looked at it as I was kind of growing as a, a film fan being like, Ooh, it's a movie that stars Al Pacino and Robin Williams. This, is, this should be interesting, especially since this actually came out um, the same year as Robin Williams also did one hour photo. So is his year of creepy roles where he was sort of branching out from his comedic persona. And it, it is really interesting. Like I'm sure if, you would watch this at the time, it probably would have really thrown you because if you know who Robin Williams is, which I believe everyone does, he's just so over the top and motor mouth runs a thousand jokes a minute. And here it's so different. He's kind of a bit of a, a sniveling man, but he has this also air of confidence that he's very sure of himself and thinks that he's thinking 10 steps ahead of everyone else. And sometimes he is, and, and sometimes he isn't. So it's got some, some nice depth from him and Al Pacino for the most part is pretty decent. I don't think Al Pacino's really been a, a good actor since like the seventies. Uh, but this is probably one of his few brighter spots. I think he's playing this character who's so run down and exhausted and the title insomnia comes from the fact that he's going to this Alaskan town where the sun doesn't set and he's not used to it. And so he can't sleep at all. And that plays a huge deal into how his character acts and behaves and it sort of, he interprets the world a little bit differently because of that. Because when you're awake for, I think by the end of the movie, he's up for about like four days straight with almost no sleep, which would make any person go insane. Like literally, I think after like two and a half days of not sleep, your brain is literally diagnosable as, as not being sane anymore. And so he does a pretty decent job. You know, there's a couple moments where he brings his Al Pacino-isms, you know, the hoo that sort of, acting style which doesn't really fit with the movie but overall i think it's a it's a pretty solid performance what were, were your thoughts on these two leads yeah i think robin williams is really great here i think often when comedians take on a more serious role it's so refreshing for us to see them in that light that it just always feels like it's really great i love seeing comedians in, in a more serious and, and toned down role um and also, I think Al Pacino is really good in this. I think the times where he's like getting angry or he's at his angriest or his outbursts are his weakest performances for me in this film. But I really like the subtleties of like as the days go by and his kind of like mental focus 
starts drifting and you can see him like visibly shake and he's more more and more fatigued. I liked the nuance that he brought to that character and that event in that character's life. Also dealing, of course, with the stuff going on back at home with, you know, his pr previous um, investigations and having his, his partner potentially turn him in and, and all the other things that he's struggling with, which is also, you know, impairing his ability to sleep. I think he really does a good job showing that. Yeah, I think he does. I think overall, the best performance of this movie probably comes from Hilary Swank. This is pretty early in her career. This is after she had won her Oscar for Boys Don't Cry, though, and before Million Dollar Baby, I believe, or around the same time, give or take. Uh, but she still looks pretty young and fresh-faced. And I think she actually gives a, a really solid performance as this sort of eager young cop who is trying to understand what the expectations are of her in this police station that is very male dominated, but also very, she's, she's clearly the rookie and the new person and doesn't really know what to do. And most of the, she talks about the only case that she's given are misdemeanors, uh, things like breaking up, um, drunken fights, things like that. So she plays that role well, but overall, this movie is pretty paint-by-numbers. It doesn't really contain any Christopher Nolan-isms. It probably sticks out of his entire filmography. He had just done Following in Memento. And, you know, if I'm following his career trajectory, you know, he made Following it as a little personal film. And then Memento, he's given a bigger budget and is allowed to do something really weird and, and unconventional. And then it's like he's given this, which is a remake of a Norwegian film, but it's just a, a very straightforward crime film. I don't believe he wrote this at all. And it, there's just not a ton to it that really distinguishes it. It almost feels like a knockoff David Fincher movie to me. Yeah, I agree. It's it's like, like I mentioned, it's at least Christopher Nolan, Christopher Nolan film. Um, I kind of disagree on the Hilary Swank uh, subject. She just was all right for me. Her character and her performance kind of sat in the middle, somewhere on the like in on the fence for me. I kind of wished that she was either more of an eager beaver, want like sticking to the book, wanted to turn every stone or be more of the, uh, you know, infatuated fan of, of Al Pacino's character who she was like followed since her Academy days. But it was like trying to be both. And I didn't feel that they sat well together. Like she either, you know, really wanted to be a good cop and followed everything to like the T and would have done her own digging and, and found out things on her own without Al Pacino's help, or she was just totally lost in his presence and happy to be there for him. So I don't know. I, it was just so-so for me, for her performance, but uh, still snow cake movie for me. I, I think that's maybe, uh, this will be my last point. I think that's, that's an interesting observation, and it's one that I sort of feel similar with. I don't think her character is very good. There's She contradicts herself often and not in a useful sort of way. Uh, but I think Hilary Swank as a performer did about as well as she could given the role that was given to her because overall the movie is just, eh, as we've said. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, coming in at number nine is Memento from 2000. <laughs> Chasing this guy. No, he's chasing me. 
Some memories are best forgotten. Leonard Shelby is tracking down the man who raped and murdered his wife. The difficulty of locating his wife's killer, however, is compounded by the fact that he suffers from a rare, untreatable form of short-term memory loss. Although he can recall details of his life before his accident, Leonard cannot remember what happened 15 minutes ago, where he's going, or why. So this was Nolan's real breakthrough movie, the one that most people, that really put him on the map because his, his first movie following, no one had really seen until he became famous later on. This movie famously plays with the convention of time where the movie goes backwards, but then in between each scene, there is a black and white shot of him on the phone and sort of explaining some plot details, and you don't really know where it fits in until the very moment that that scene actually turns to color and then reconnects with the rest of the movie for the final scene to play backwards as well. Um, This movie basically perfectly encapsulates his condition of memory. He can't make new memories, and so as a viewer, we're watching it, and basically every time a new scene starts, we forget what happened before until the very moment where they like connect each other right at the very end, which I think is a very useful way of of being able to connect the dots for the audience. Uh, Is this a movie that you'd seen it once before? Is this a movie that you sort of struggled with following or or what about it? So I remember when I first saw this film, I did have a hard time following it and just trying to connect everything. And then by the end, feeling kind of confused. So on second watch, I was excited to see how it fared and if I disliked it as much as I did the first time. And after watching it a second time, I was I was all for it about half till about halfway and I just kind of lost interest. I was like, okay, yeah, I can see this is interesting. I, I know where this is going. I'll, I totally understand what I missed before. And then it just fell off. It was it felt too long to get to the ending. And you're just repeating everything again and again and again. And by the time it gets there, I don't feel in, like invested in, in any of the characters in any way. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, sure. So the payoff doesn't feel as big enough to me as it should have been with such a long wait. Um, having said that, though, I do think that I appreciate it and understand it better watching it a second time around and understanding, you know, the the importance and the the innovation that came along with this movie i think for the most part this movie works so well for me is due to guy pierce's performance you have someone you know movies are normally not filmed in order and so actors are basically having to remember exactly the emotions that they need to be playing what sort of history are they bringing to the scene whether they're shooting the last scene on the first day or the first scene on the last day and so it's it's a really interesting way to approach a performance because guy pierce basically is allowed to begin every scene as the exact same person he doesn't have to know more than his character knows in that very moment of literally what is happening in his surroundings. He knows what his backstory is, and that's the that's sort of the easier stuff to imbue your character with, but he doesn't need to remember any more of that. There's, you know, part of the backstory is Sammy Jenkins, who is played by Stephen Tobolowski, who, you know, has the same condition in the description that we're given is that maybe there's a twinkle in his eye that he recognizes someone that he just met after his accident and and Guy Pierce is able to completely remove that twinkle. He sees the same people over and over again and gets the 
to do the exact same introduction every single time. I tell you about Sammy Jenkins. I have a condition. Have I told you about it? And sometimes the people will let him play around with it and give his little spiel for a little bit. But then they'll be like, no, you've told me before. And he's like, well, sorry. I never know if I've met you before or not. Yeah, I think he's definitely the best part of this film. I love his kind of ease when he's talking to people and his sarcasm and just the way he, you know, has a rapport with people that are essentially strangers to him, even though they remember meeting him before. So I thought that was really great what he brought. My one question though is how does he remember that he has this condition? Like if if this condition came to him after his incident, how does he always remember that he has it? I feel like he should have had a tattoo that says, you have this condition. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, I think there's, you know, there's a little bit where he talks about he makes his way through life through repetition. And so there's a bit of mystery involved of maybe how much has he been able to regain some of his brain functions as far as the ability to create short-term memories, which turn into long-term memories. We see him over and over again. Every time he looks down at his hand, he sees the Remember Sammy Jenkins tattoo and he tries to wipe it off. And it's nice because, you know, most movies would probably do it once at the beginning, which is in reality is the end of this movie. But basically it happens about four or five times where every time he looks down at his hand, he goes to wipe it off. And it's a nice little touch where it sort of reminds the listener of his forgetfulness of everything. So it's interesting. I, I hear what you're saying. And I think it kind of maybe they want to have their cake and eat it, too. Maybe it's a little bit of both ways. Maybe it's just a plot device where... It's just easier if he's able to rattle off this speech every time. I'm not too sure. Maybe it is that he was able to uh, regain some memories due to the fact that he's able to repeat the same things every single day. You know, he, he knows to look for his photos and the way he only trusts his handwriting and things like that. Um, you know, they talk a couple times about his freaky tattoos. Did you find that was a good character choice where he's covered in tattoos? Some of them look like they're done professionally. And some of them, as we see, are just like prison style pen tattoos. Yeah, I think the idea is interesting. I feel like the execution doesn't really land well with me. I'm confused as to why sometimes he does them himself, why sometimes he does them professionally, why they're all different fonts and different styles. It just doesn't jive with me. Like if you're going to create lists, I feel like, you know, for consistency's sake and for repetition, you'd want them to be the same. So I find it really weird that some are sprawled across his chest or are tiny little ones on his thigh. How does he decide where he puts them? It, it, it seems kind of sporadic and random to me. I'm I'm pretty forgiving of that. Like, I think it works. You know, we talk about they, they talk about how in the movie he's gone through several towns in, in California. He's from San Francisco. He's clearly not in San Francisco by the time this movie is taking place and they don't mention what city it is. So I think just the, the aspect of going to different tattoo parlors and I'm guessing due to the nature of some of the tattoos, he's probably not going to the nicest of shops because a really reputable tattoo artist is probably not going to be like find him and kill him um, without calling the police first. Maybe it's something like he's going to, you know, uh, biker gang shops, things like that, uh, where he's just like, just tattoo it. I don't care the style. I don't care what it looks like. I just want this on my body here. Um, 
he, they also talk a little bit about why right above his heart on his chest, there's nothing there. And he talks about maybe he's saving that room for when he finally does it. I don't know. That's some plot I can forgive. I, I'm I'm quite high on this movie, mostly due to its formal ingenuity. I really like the way it was structured. I know the most common criticism is if you were to just play this front to back the way it would have been, the way you can actually watch as a DVD special feature if you own the DVD. Uh, it's a pretty basic crime story. And it is. And it works because it's backwards. And that's the only thing. And so what if it's a little hooky? I'm fine with that, really. I suppose that's where we differ. Uh, so moving on, what do we got next? Okay, next we have The Dark Knight Rises from 2012. That's a beautiful necklace. Reminds me of one that belonged to my mother. It can't be the same one. Because her pearls are in the safe. The manufacturer clearly explained is uncrackable. Oops. Nobody told me it was uncrackable. I'm afraid I can't let you take those. Look. You wouldn't beat up a woman any more than I would beat up a cripple. Of course, sometimes exceptions have to be made. Good night, Mr. Wayne. This is the final of the Dark Knight trilogy. So following the death of District Attorney Harvey Dent, Batman assumes responsibility for Dent's crimes to protect the late attorney's reputation and is subsequently hunted by the Gotham City Police Department. Eight years later, Batman encounters the mysterious Selina Kyle and the villainous Bane, a new terrorist leader who overwhelms Gotham's finest. The Dark Knight resurfaces to protect a city that has branded him as an enemy. Now, I know a lot of people have issues with this third installment, um, and, you know, full discretion, uh, full bias here. I love the, the Dark Knight trilogy as a whole, so I kind of want to fight for Dark Knight Rises. I think there was so much hype over Dark Knight. There's no way that Dark Knight Rises was ever going to live up to that. And so I think people find it hard to just take this on its own and stop comparing it to the Dark Knight. But I actually really liked it. I understand there's some plot holes. I know that, you know, the Batman voice gets worse and worse as we continue throughout the trilogy. But I still, like, enjoyed the action that happens, the, you know, the gravitas of all the things that's happening. And I just take it at, at, at face value. Yeah, this is tough. I when the first time I watched it, I really didn't like it. I've seen this movie a couple times now. I really didn't like it because I, I am so high on the first two. And this time, I don't think I've watched it. When was the last time I watched it? It's been like seven years ago. It's been a while. So I didn't watch it since then. And I actually liked it a little bit more. I think, you know... As I was saying, after we watched it, maybe it's because there's been so many superhero movies where most of them are just mediocre to okay that maybe, you know, this sort of is in that same pack where it isn't as bad as some of the other ones or like I, I don't really know how to word it where I just didn't really have the same energy to hate this movie as I did before. I still think there are significant, you know, plot holes as far as Batman's injuries and him being able to fight as well as he does. And 
how come, you know, he disappears from the public life. Literally, Bruce Wayne disappears from the public life for eight years, and so does Batman. And then the same day that Bruce Wayne reappears in public, so does Batman. Like, it's got some interesting weird things like that that are, are I kind of feel a little plot holy. Uh, I also feel that Nolan tried to cram just a little bit too much into this movie. The first two movies have a lot going on and it's a, it's a real balancing thread, but they're able to kind of get away with because it isn't the finality of these characters that were allowed to have some more open-ended endings for them whereas this because they try to wrap everything up so nicely every character has to have that conclusion and so they just kind of rush through all of their emotions and changes to get to where they are supposed to be that we are satisfied with them as a viewer yeah i totally agree with that with the like neat you know wrapped gift at the end for everyone's story it isn't necessary it's actually one of the qualms that i do have with this film like i wish I mean, spoiler alert, I don't know, this movie's old, so I'm not going to bother. But, you know, at the end, when um, Alfred sees Bruce Wayne and Selena Kyle in Italy at a cafe, one, I'm not sure why we had to have those two end up if we couldn't just assume that they were going to near the end. Or we had already heard Alfred tell the story about how he had had this dream about seeing him across the room at this Italian cafe. I would have loved for it to just end on on Michael Caine's face, seeing someone and kind of giving this knowing smile and glance and us not seeing who he's glancing on and just kind of assume, is it Batman? Is it not Batman? I think that is much stronger than just trying to neatly wrap everything up. And I think that would actually be very Inception-esque as far as the ending goes, because the ending of Inception is sort of left up to the viewer. I know if you want to go out there and read, there is a definitive explanation for it, but that would, I feel like that would, the ending would be more Nolan-esque if he would, it would just be the repeating of Michael Caine's dream, Alfred's dream, and he just looks over, nods, smiles, picks up his paper, and walks away. I agree. I think that would have been a much better idea, and especially it doesn't, you know, it also leaves up with the ambiguity of did... Catwoman and Batman end up together. Selena and Bruce end up together because they talk about it. And then if we don't actually see them together, you know, as fans, we can debate, did they actually end up together or was it just something that they were saying to each other to give them the confidence to keep going, to keep pushing forward and not just give up because life can still move on whether you end up with someone or not, but there is more life to live. And that's sort of a happy ending where it's just, hope it doesn't necessarily have to be proof of hope but just hope in general yeah no i agree i i think it's kind of a weird little way to wrap it up especially since the whole movie they complain about being together and she's constantly saying how she would never end up with them and would never want to be with that man and all of a sudden she does i don't know that's just one of the things i have an issue with but overall i still like this movie frankly speaking Anne hathaway i think gives the best female performance in this trilogy and that's sort of damning it with faint praise. I think she's, she does a pretty good job. She handles the action stuff. Well, she kind of has this nice mysterious little, uh, naughtiness to her, the way she kind of works as a con artist with her and her friend played by uh, Juno temple. I think they, she does a really good job with that character arc. Um, but overall, you know, she's sort of just so, so, um, which is frustrating considering i don't know maybe it's maybe that's kind of a christopher nolan problem as a whole where he doesn't 
right female characters all that great him and his brother jonathan uh but i definitely think anne hathaway gives the best performance out of any women in this trilogy yeah i agree this whole trilogy is lacking for a strong female lead (laughs) throughout all of them and yeah i do agree that she is probably the closest thing to it because Marion Cotillard is also in this, but basically her her entire character arc is mysterious, scared woman until the literally the very end where it completely changes. And frankly, it doesn't work in my opinion. Hurt. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from from there. So I would love to see a Christopher Nolan film that did have a strong female lead. I didn't even think about that. All of his films not really having one until you just said it. And uh, yeah, work on that, Chris. Yeah, we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but like, you know, most of these films are, are such male dominated and the movies that do have larger female leads, they're pretty much in the service of their their male counterpart are only there to sort of be exposition plot points sort of thing. All right. Coming in at number uh, eight is Batman Begins from 2005. You could have just sent a thank you note. I didn't come here to thank you. I came here to show you that not everyone in Gotham's afraid of you. Only those who know me, kid. Look around you. You'll see two councilmen, a union official, a couple off-duty cops, and a judge. Now, I wouldn't have a second's hesitation in blowing your head off right here and right now in front of them. Now, that's power you can't buy. Driven by tragedy, billionaire Bruce Wayne dedicates his life to uncovering and defeating the corruption that plagues his home, Gotham City. Unable to work within the system, he instead creates a new identity, a symbol of fear for the criminal underworld, the Batman. So we just did the third movie in the series. Now we're doing the first movie because it shouldn't come as a shock to anyone of where we placed the middle one in that series. Uh, But this is a pretty decent origin story. I know by now we're all pretty sick of the origin story, especially of Batman. It's played out so many times, much like Spider-Man. We, we know how it goes. Batman is a kid. He uh, gets scared by bats. He goes to the theater with his parents. And as they leave, uh, they get held up by a mugger and his parents are shot and killed. We've seen that so many times. We do not need to see it again. Unfortunately, at this time in 2005, we hadn't seen it since the early 90s when the original Batman, 1989 Batman, came out. So it was long enough that it was fine. It was a bit of a different take where they sort of incorporate a bit more of a, a Greek mythology behind his persona. And I think they do really well. Really, almost everything in this movie to set Batman as a character up, I think they do a very solid job of here is a real-world explanation for why this works. And it really grounds the movie in reality, which is, you know, the hallmark of this series is the grounding of reality. Is this something that you felt similarly? Totally. I think it's a great intro or setup for The Dark Knight. And, you know, you it's not just an origin. You see, you know, how he gets from A to B from that origin. So I think it's really great. And I really do enjoy this film. And I've seen it a bunch of times. I loved it the first time I saw it. Touching back, I'll say my one big negative here um, is just, you know, Rachel does not work for me here. This character feels really weak. And I don't think that Katie Holmes is the right actress to even play the character. So I feel like it's two hits against poor Rachel Dawes. But um, other than that, I really liked all the um, performances and was there the entire way. Hot take. I prefer Katie Holmes over Maggie Gyllenhaal. 
I go back and forth. I can never decide. I, I'll watch Batman again and be like, oh, no, I prefer Maggie. And then I'll watch Dark Knight and I'm like, oh, no, I prefer Katie Holmes. So I can't even say. Like, it's without a question, Maggie Gyllenhaal is a far superior actor than Katie Holmes. I think this, once again, has to do with the how the character is written. Because I, I guess I'll kind of get into it here. Um, in Batman Begins we see more of the confused friendship between Bruce and Rachel. And they do a really interesting job sort of playing with that dynamic where Rachel isn't sure who Bruce is. She hadn't seen him for years. He had disappeared off the face of the earth and suddenly he comes back. She's now gone to law school, become an assistant DA. She's working to, to fight crime and thinks that he is just, you know, being the rich playboy that she had hoped he never would turn out to be. And that's unfortunately, as you know, a line from the series is Bruce Wayne is his mask. Batman is who he really is. Whereas compared to Rachel in The Dark Knight, I feel basically her only motivation is to uh, nag and be angry at Bruce Wayne for either doing too much or not doing enough. And so at least I feel that the role written for Katie Holmes has a bit more variance to it, even if Katie Holmes as an actor isn't as strong. Yeah, I'll agree with you there. I think that the character herself is stronger in Batman Begins, but I feel like Maggie Gyllenhaal is a better fit for the role that was written in The Dark Knight. I just don't find Katie Holmes to be like, I didn't find her compelling or strong, strong-willed enough to be this, DA who was trying to fight all this nasty crime and he was so serious. I, I felt like I was there with her and it, it made sense to me when she had her scenes with Bruce when Bruce first comes back. But as a D, DA and like a strong, like, you know, hard hitting DA, I, I just didn't buy it. So I think that's where I tend to lean more towards Maggie Gyllenhaal because I think she at least played the role better to her. Uh, like talent and quality. I think another aspect that often gets overlooked is, you know, we remember the Dark Knight trilogy as being this dark, gritty, realistic, not quite hyper-violent, but hyper-action-oriented that completely reinvented the superhero genre so much so that, like, they basically had to throw out everything that came was coming out around the same time, and everything was modeled after this, for better or for worse, until basically the MCU movies decided to significantly lighten things up. But re-watching this movie, which I hadn't seen for a couple of years, I actually find it quite comic booky. There's several moments of this where, like in the whole narrow sequence, which is uh, this this poor ghettoized neighborhood where there's the purple and green smoke, which has that nice sort of Tim Burton-esque feel to it. And then the way they utilize the bats as a whole is very comic book and cartoony at times as well. So it's very interesting that... You know, we we praise the Dark Knight trilogy as being this such gritty, grounded, realistic film. But looking back, I'm just like, yeah, there kind of is still elements of of comic book campness, which maybe they needed at the time because I don't want to say the world wasn't ready for a dark, gritty movie, uh, superhero Batman movie, but maybe it was just sort of trying to straddle both worlds at the same time. And for the most part, I think it actually does a pretty good job. You know, some of it's a little silly as far as the the effects go, where you can kind of notice it a bit better, but that's unfortunately going to be a problem with any movie that utilizes significant CGI. Yeah, I like how it kind of straddles that line. It is kind of comic booky and 
and maybe it is a little cheesy in areas, but I think that's also great because, you know, as each film goes on, you get less and less of that as the more serious and serious and tone that the, the films get. So I like that it starts off on more of that lighter footing so that it has somewhere to go. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's a pretty good talk of that. Um, yeah, we'll move on then. So at number six, we have Following. This was uh, released in 1998. Your eyes um, drift across a crowd of people and they slowly stop and fix on one person and all of a sudden that person isn't part of the crowd anymore. They become an individual, just like that. Just became irresistible. So you followed women? Yeah, I followed anybody. I just wanted to see where they went, what they did. It was supposed to just be completely random. You would never follow the same person twice. That was the most important world. That was the one that I broke first. That's when the trouble started. About Bill, an idle, unemployed, aspiring writer who walks the crowded streets of London following randomly chosen strangers, a seamlessly innocent entertainment that becomes dangerous when he crosses paths with a mysterious character. I had actually never even heard about this film before, so I was excited to watch it and didn't really even know what it was about. So I pretty much went in blind and I was actually really happy with like watching it and how I felt afterwards. I thought it was a great story and I loved the different reveals and twists that kept happening throughout the film, not just necessarily all at the end. And I thought the performances were quite great too. It's like this little noir film set, you know, in the 90s, which was kind of great. And I loved that. It's it's all black and white, which also adds this like sinister dark tone. You're not you're not sure who to trust. It it felt Christopher Nolan to me, which is interesting because this felt more Christopher Nolan to me than say Insomnia did, which was his third film. So I believe that's just kind of a write off. Insomnia was like one that was handed off to him, but this was the beginning of like where he started, where his writing was, and where his mind is, and how you can see where he came from. Yeah, I had never seen it as well. I, I was familiar with it, and it's one that I was wanting to watch. I was quite surprised that this movie is actually only an hour and ten minutes, which is obviously extremely short for any feature length. But knowing that you know this is this came out a year after he had graduated from university, uh, it stars his university friend who was in Doodlebug, uh, an actor by the name of Jeremy Theobald, who hasn't done a ton. He's he's had a few cameos in other Christopher Nolan movies and, and worked mostly in British television, but never sort of uh, made a big name for himself. Uh, this movie has so much that sets up for Christopher Nolan's other films. You talked about Inception. This movie is basically Inception without the science fiction aspect to it. For the first, I would say, half of the movie, it's pretty straightforward. We understand what's happening. There seems, there's, there's a, it does cut back to uh, Bill at a later point where he changes his hair. And so it, you're wondering a little bit of how does this all connect but it doesn't really connect until the very end. And by the very end, there's like quite a bit of timelines. There's double crossing, triple crossing. You don't really know who to trust. And it's very interesting. And and it's sort of much like basically become a hallmark of Christopher Nolan movies, which, you know, I would posit is a, he's a better version of someone like M night Shyamalan. There is a big reveal twist at the very end. And this movie definitely has a huge twist. This is the one movie I'm not comfortable with maybe spoiling because I feel like other people haven't seen it and I wouldn't want to ruin that ending, the surprise. But safe to say, I think it does a very good job at keeping you on your toes and not being sure exactly what's happening until that final reveal happens. And it's a very dark film because of it. 
Yeah, totally. I wouldn't want to ruin this spoiler either. Although I want to talk about it so bad because, you know, it truly ties into the title of this film. That's all I'll say. Um, so, yeah, I think it's great. And I think if you haven't seen it or heard of it, look into it because it's a really fun and, like you said, short watch. So which is always good in my book. Um, I really enjoyed it. The one criticism I would say that maybe kind of held it back for me from being higher, the acting wasn't all that great for me. They don't have a ton of range. They, the action scenes that they do have are kind of a little clunky. This is, this is a director who's still sort of finding his footing. Clearly a director who's very confident in himself that he's able to tell a complicated story and is able to trust both his preparation as a director and as a writer doing this and the team around him to be able to, to trust his vision. But it's a little uh, weakened in regards to the actual performances. Oh man, I kind of disagree here. I, I really liked how real they felt. They didn't feel like characters. Um, they were kind of clumsy, kind of clunky in their own way. And then different things they did throughout the scenes, which just kind of resonated as just like an average Joe type deal you know it's not your inception you know Leonardo DiCaprio beautiful boy who can do all the stunts it's some random writer on the street who meets this mysterious other guy who happens to break into people's apartments and it felt super natural and real to me which is what I liked about it you can tell like we know this is a super micro budget film and I think the cinematography is not hindered in it it actually gives a real grittiness to it that we like, you know, uh, Bill lives in a, a crappy rundown apartment, Cobb, who you'll recognize the name also from inception, uh, hides his stuff in a rundown abandoned building. And then there is the, the female character I'm blanking on what her name is right now. Um, she, her boyfriend or ex-lover, we're, we're not really sure, uh, works out of this kind of grimy bar that is uh, basically a front for drug dealing and, and other sort of things like that. So it sort of works that it's a very low quality that they didn't need to, you know, be like, oh, and this is a really nice house. And, you know, we can just tell that it's, you know, one of Christopher Nolan's classmates' apartment, parents' house that they're trying to make it look like something it's not. So all of that really works for the cinematography. It gives it a real uh, earthy groundness. But it's it's just so fascinating to watch this and understand where Christopher Nolan grows as a director and how he changes, but also what elements and seeds are planted in this that he would later mine from again and again, which I really appreciated. Yeah, definitely. I actually read today somewhere that Chris Reynolds started writing the script for Inception whilst filming this film. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It almost makes you think that we, we you know, you watch these two, you can see so many differences that he, he knows this is his debut film and this is going to be his calling card that he's going to show to producers and other industry people and be like, hey, you can trust me, give me a bigger budget and I can work towards it where I can see him being like, much like how we see directors who start out make a short and then make a future length version of it, where the short is basically the trailer that they're using to get more funding. I wouldn't be surprised if he was using this, knowing that, trusting himself that he would be able to be successful enough 
that, hey, this is my movie and this is how I'm going to extrapolate it into being a two-hour version, but I shot a one-hour condensed version of it. And then along the way, I don't know if, you know, the time travel elements, not that Inception is time travel-y, but playing with dimensions and, and reality, if, if that was always there or something like that, um, how you can see it grew from following. Yeah, I can see that. And I think there's so many different aspects in this film that are retouched and, and brought back out in several of his other films, not just Inception. So I think this is a great beginning to what has been his career. All right, coming in at number five is Interstellar from 2014. Did Professor Brent tell you that poem before you left? Do you remember? Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Interstellar chronicles the adventures of a group of explorers who make use of a newly discovered wormhole to surpass the limitations on human space travel and conquer vast distances involved in an interstellar voyage. This is now peak Christopher Nolan, where we're getting in the era of huge budget where just saying the name Christopher Nolan means an event at the movie theater. You want to see it on that big screen with the, the booming Hans Zimmer score with the, with the gorgeous photography, with the really classy, beautiful sets with the A-list stars packing it in where it's not just one star. You're getting like five, six, seven, eight lead actors playing smaller parts so it's it's basically peak Christopher Nolan. You know, we we basically I don't want to say we we've come to expect this and maybe take advantage of it, but but basically this is this is sort of peak Nolan-esque and it might not always work for everyone. I know a lot of people sort of have complaints with some of the science being a little iffy for them, but this is a movie that works really well for me and I would say that it is probably his best designed movie looks the nicest to me and so this is a movie i'm very high on much higher than you i believe uh but i i adore this film yeah i think this movie is visually stunning and the score is also fantastic so just you know a movie for your senses i would go to this one for sure hands down i think it runs a little long i think there's some areas that could you know be cut down or just eliminated completely because by the end you know you get a little fatigue from from you know even the visuals and the score just all the stuff you're taking aback from you um i especially lost interest in a few areas but i the first time i watched this i remember not liking it and re-watching it i'm not sure why i didn't like it because i do like this film that there's just a few small things that i wish were were different and that would have changed so i'm not sure where i came from from not liking it from the first time I, I saw it, but I, I think it is a great film. I think, you know, there's a lot of time spent on Matthew McConaughey and, and his daughter's relationship, which kind of centers the whole film. And it's just a lot of the same thing for me. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it's definitely what is now known as a Christopher Nolan film and anything from here on out in his career is going to be expected to be, something like this and held to this standard. I hear what you're saying in regards to, you know, a, a lot of the similar stuff in the middle part. Maybe it maybe seems a little mundane, but it sort of reminds me a little bit of, 
a ghost story as far as movies that I like where showing this impossible passage of time and what it does to us uh, as, as people, as humanity. And I think it does a really good job where you have this man who basically is, is standing still, but everything around him is, is changing. We get this a, a few times most notably when he goes to the water planet and it's supposed to be every, I don't know, seven minutes on the planet is one year on outside of the planet. And so they're expected to only be there for, uh, I think half an hour or something like that. And they're, it's the two crew members that go down is, is Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway. And then they have a, a third, um, astronaut who stays up on the ship but they end up encountering this water storm and they almost die there and they end up being on this planet for two hours. And by the time they get back, I think it's something like 27 years had passed. And anytime like something like that happens in a movie, it just sort of hits me so hard. This is a man who had, had to spend doing absolutely nothing for 27 years, except wait for someone. Uh, and that's just, is, is such a, a powerful moment for me. Yeah, there was actually three of them who went down to the water planet because they do lose one guy down there. But and that I think that's what's missing, though, is, you know, this guy who's waiting for them. You don't see any of his story. You know that time has passed and you feel for the guy, but you can only feel for him so much on such a surface level because you didn't witness anything he went through. So it seems so minute in something that you just kind of forget about the next minute. And that's something also that I felt with McConaughey's kids uh, once they grow up and they've become these fully formed people with jobs and emotions and families. We've missed all that. We're not sure. We understand why his son, Tom, is so angry, but like we don't see any of the stuff that gets him to that point. And we know that um, Jessica Chastain, Murph, is where she's at and why she's working where she's working, but we see nothing really that happens other than the few little videos that come so few far in between to kind of catch Matthew McConaughey up with what's happening back at home. And I just kind of wish that there was more of a mixture of both. It's been so much time. I understand it's supposed to be like his story and viewed from his, you know, viewpoint where he came from and how he gets there. But I just didn't feel any kind of connection to any character, which is something that I felt lacked and made this movie. Maybe it's a little bit too cold for me. You wouldn't be alone in calling Christopher Nolan cold. Uh, that's often been a, a criticism levied against him, but I, I disagree. I, I love the fact that we don't get those moments that us as a viewer have to sort of imagine the horrors of, wanting to see someone and longing for a connection and we're not given the satisfaction of getting that and how not getting that can turn to anger and resentment and sadness and how that can manifest in, in different people in different ways for the astronaut up on the spaceship that is, you know, accepting while he understands what's going on, just accepting his fate of they might not be coming back. And with his daughter it's the anger and disappointment of her who she was lied to by her father that he was going to come back. And for the son, it's just straight up resentment for basically being abandoned and handling it very differently. He doesn't have that same hope that the daughter has of, of waiting for him to come back. And so for that, that all sort of really works for me. 
we touched about it at the very beginning, but this probably is is my favorite score of of all the Christopher Nolan films. That like haunting organ just works so much for me. Uh, it does have a great score. Uh, I'll touch on my favorite score a few slots up. All right, coming in at number four, we have The Dark Knight, released in two thousand and eight. I know why you choose to have your little <clears throat> group therapy sessions in broad daylight. I know why you're afraid to go out at night. The Batman. You see, Batman has shown Gotham your true colors, unfortunately. Dent, he's just the beginning. And, and as for uh, the television's so-called plan, Batman has no jurisdiction. He'll find him and make him squeal. I know the squealers when I see them. Batman rises, raises the stakes in his war on crime with the help of Lieutenant Jim Gordon and District Attorney Harvey Dent. Batman sets out to dismantle the remaining criminal organizations that plague the streets. The partnership proves to be effective, but soon they find themselves prey to a reign of chaos unleashed by a rising criminal mastermind known to the terrified citizens of Gotham as the Joker. So we all know this as everyone's favorite Dark Knight movie of the Dark Knight trilogy. <laughs> um, I do think it is the best for sure. I think just the opening scene alone, you know, earns the merit of this being the best one. Also, the performances are great. Obviously, Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker is iconic. And um, I, I feel like there was a lot thrown at this movie uh, and it was held so in such high regard because of Heath Ledger and of course the, the tragic events that happened just before the release of this film but I think there's just so much more to this movie in regards to to story and plot and the way that Christopher Nolan has developed this world from uh, Batman Begins. You know this is the this is probably the the one movie that like it's now become impossible to talk about just because of the, the lore and the mythology behind it, but also just how popular it is. And it's basically sort of become the, um, the basic film bro starter kit film. You know, you've got uh, the dark Knight, you've got Pulp Fiction, you've got fight club, you've got Shawshank Redemption. It's really hard to critically analyze these films anymore without sort of coming across as, this fanboy of like, oh yeah, I just discovered film. Have you seen The Dark Knight? It's so good. It's the best thing ever. It's so edgy. Um, so in that regard, it's a little tricky. I was a bit leery about revisiting this for the first time in a couple of years and, and having to discuss it in a bit more of a critical sense, especially Heath Ledger's performance. We all know the more over-the-top and clownish aspects of it that he does so well whether you know it's the the clapping in the jail cell or him trying to blow up the hospital or the wise oh serious moments or the the speeches about the scars how we got the scars that's all so ingrained in our memories but outside of that it's the little moments the quiet moments that Heath Ledger is just so good at we had just watched uh Brokeback Mountain for the first time and, you know, he might as well be speaking a different language through most of the movie because he just mumbles the whole thing. But that doesn't matter because it's all about the emotion that he brings to his character. And and maybe it's needing to see that to be able to appreciate what he's doing in The Dark Knight as the Joker. Once you sort of get past the facade of the over-the-topness, there is so much to him and so much pain and confusion 
that he brings that just is so Heath Ledger and makes, you know, I know it sounds so cheesy, but me saying I miss Heath Ledger. No, for sure. Like I would have loved to have seen where he went from here. Cause yeah, watching Brokeback Mountain. Oh man. Like sidebar that performance, I think was his best performance, but in the dark night. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, Definitely sad to know that we're not going to get anything more from him. You talked about it. You said the opening high sequence is what makes this movie. And, and I would agree. There's there's about three or four real set pieces in this movie that just like the movie is built around these moments. And we know this because they're shot in IMAX. So the aspect ratio actually changes during these moments. I remember when I saw it in theaters for the first time, just being absolutely overwhelmed. We've got the the opening high sequence. We've got the, the Hong Kong tower sequence. Um, there's the motorcycle and 18 wheeler bit. Like those, those three moments alone just blows your mind as far as, what this movie is made around and Christopher Nolan rightfully focuses on them and was able to utilize these IMAX cameras, which shot in 70 millimeter. And he knew what he was doing. He, I would say, you know, this movie came out right after the prestige, the prestige made him the director. He was, if he didn't make the prestige, I don't think the dark Knight would be as good as it is because this is a huge step up in filmmaking. When you compare it to Batman begins, Batman begins was his first, you know, real big budget film. He's kind of playing around with new techniques and, and uh, equipment at his disposal. But this is sort of the turning point. The prestige, he, he amps it up playing with the format a little bit. We'll talk about it later but here he's sort of solidifying what does it really mean to be a Christopher Nolan movie what are viewers going to expect when they go to a movie theater to see a Christopher Nolan movie and basically every movie from the Dark Knight onwards has these very recognizable elements of the DNA yeah I think so too like I I definitely agree I think there's so many scenes in this movie that are that have become iconic and that are are so memorable Um, all that you touched on uh, which is why it makes it my favorite of the three. But I mean, like I said, it's everyone's favorite of the three. All right, moving on to number three, we have Dunkirk from 2017. What does it you think you can do out there on this thing? It's not just us. The call went out. We aren't the only ones to answer, you know. You don't even have guns. You have a gun? Yes, of course. I'm right for the 303. Did it help you against the dive bombers and the U-boats? You're an old fool. I'm not going back. I'm not going back. Turn it around. I'm not turning around. Turn it around! The story of the miraculous evacuation of Allied soldiers from Belgium, Britain, Canada, and France who were cut off and surrounded by the German army from the beaches and harbour of Dunkirk between May 26th and June 4th, 1940, during World War II. I, I love this film. You know, I actually ended up uh, ranking this number one on my my list. It's it's here because it's it's sort of the aggregate between the two of us. I actually would say that this is Nolan's most affecting film as far as emotional resonance. There are multiple times in this movie that I got a little teary eyed. I think everyone's characters are so clearly defined with their wants, their motivations, their hopes, their fears, everything about it. 
screams perfection as far as being able to piece it all together and then add on top of it this very clever narrative style of you know you have the the boat rescue uh, you have the beaches which is one week before you have the boat rescue which is one day before and then the airplane aerial sequence which is one hour before and then slowly all three of these timelines converge together uh is this a movie you rated this a little bit lower than i did Maybe you want to talk about what didn't work as well for you. Yeah. um, I was actually really excited to rewatch this one. um, And I really enjoyed rewatching this one as a second take. I think the first time the whole timeline thing got really confusing for me and it didn't fully connect. So rewatching it and knowing that going into it made it a lot easier for me to watch. But I think it's so great the way that he's done it and the way that they intertwine and finally meet up together at the end is really great. I wouldn't say that there was anything terribly wrong with this film that that brings it down on, on our rankings or my own personal rankings. It's just that the ones that I've ranked higher, I just liked more. I just enjoyed more. So I don't think that this is any worse. I just, um, it just didn't do as much for me as some of the other ones that I have ranked it higher. But I, I think that it was really great that it's not so it doesn't heavily rely on dialogue to get the plot going. There's a lot of quiet scenes. There's a lot of gunfire and stuff, but there's also just a lot of, you know, quiet scenes that happen, emotions and, you know, recognitions that are able to just settle that you can take in and watch that I think are really great and really beautiful. It it definitely, I think Nolan understood that dialogue is not the key to this story this is this is the type of movie that is made for the movies this is an expressly visual story where we understand exactly what is happening based on what we are shown and hear on screen not what is said there is you know most movies especially christopher nolan movies are so exposition heavy where you need to catch the audience up on everything that's happening this is the complete opposite he actually almost leaves you in the dark a little bit as far as where everything is you have to really pay attention to some visual cues to understand where things are happening in the movie you sort of see little elements like when um the boats are passing by you you see the plane that had crashed earlier and so you sort of have to put two and two together to really get those moments yeah i loved those little like puzzle pieces that you kind of have to see catch and put them back together which is something i i think i completely missed the first watch so watching it again i really appreciated them being there and being able to follow follow those through the entire film and connect everything together made it really interesting and and kind of made you think you're like oh oh wow okay yeah that's the same boat that we just saw when they flew over the previous scene and you know different things that just keep connecting you back to each of the three stories i think it was really great and well told the score i think is really interesting in this it utilizes a, a ticking watch and basically is supposed to make the the viewer on edge I remember when I watched it in theaters with a much better sound system. It, it's it's very overwhelming and powerful, yet also sort of subtle at the same time. But rewatching it, especially comparing it to some of his other scores, it didn't have the same intensity. And maybe that's because we don't have a, a, a huge, beautiful sound system. Yeah. No, I see what you're saying there. But um, I think the the beauty of this film too though is that it doesn't have such an overwhelming score and it, it is simple 
So it's something that doesn't bother me as much, but it definitely helps to have a good sound system when watching any movie, really, but especially one as like subtle as this one. Oh, no doubt. Um, I would say that this probably is his best shot film out of all of it. He he really utilizes color and natural light in a way that he had never done before. I would I would say only Interstellar sort of comes close enough to it being the best shot film. There's some absolutely remarkable imagery in this. My favorite, maybe one of my all-time favorite movie shots is at the very end when, when Tom Hardy's plane had crashed, he burns it so that way the enemy can't use it for parts or steal any of the, the technology that is on board. And so he's standing there and the plane is in flames and the sun is setting and it's just beautiful. And then the next shot is his face and you see the fire being reflected off of his face and it's just so beautiful and haunting at the same time and i I just absolutely love the cinematography in this yeah for sure i mean that scene is stunning i love that scene that is also one of my favorite uh scenes in in a film and it it's gut-wrenching because it's so beautiful but what's happening in in the scene you're watching is so terrible so there's just juxtaposition of this beautiful scenery with this heartbreaking story or event that's happening in front of your eyes and your brain and your heart don't know how to feel and how to view them at the same time it's so good i would actually say despite the fact that this you know for the most part has a relatively uplifting enough ending where they try to make it kind of exciting because so many lives got saved this might be his most tragic film considering the amount of loss and grief that everyone goes through all three storylines there is so much darkness that happens for these characters that you can't help but feel and that's why i i say this is his most emotional film and probably the only christopher nolan movie where i would argue if someone called it cold feeling no i totally agree i think there's definitely some like sad undertones throughout the entire film that even though by the time you get to the end and, you know, they're wrapping up some of the, the, the storylines and it, it's, you can kind of view it as like a happy ending. There's just so much that has happened that doesn't allow you to feel like it's a, a do good, happy story. This movie is so much better than The Darkest Hour, which basically is the Churchill perspective that won Gary Oldman his Oscar. Uh, but I digress. Uh, what's our number two film? Number two is Inception that came out in 2010. Got the basic layout. Bookstore, cafe, almost everything else is here too. Who are the people? Projections of my subconscious. Yours? Yes. Remember, you are the dreamer. You build this world. I am the subject. My mind populates. You can literally talk to my subconscious that's one of the ways we extract information from the subject how else do you do it by creating something secure like a like a bank vault or a jail the mind automatically fills it with information it's trying to protect understand then you break in and steal it well Cobb, a skilled thief who commits corporate espionage by infiltrating the subconscious of his targets is offered a chance to regain his old life as a payment for a task considered to be impossible inception the implantation of another person's idea into a target's subconscious. This one, uh, surprisingly, was my number one ranked film in my of my personal list. I thought it was going to be the film we're going to talk about next, but at, upon rewatch, we actually watched this one and that one back to back. And so, watching them so close together, 
this one edged out. And I think I just loved, first of all, this is my favorite score. I love the score in this one. It's just so big and so overwhelming and just feels like a dooming dream. So I think it's so fitting. Uh, but the world building that takes place in this movie and the set design and all the different layers that take place that you're trying to, to follow, make it a fun watch, make it an interesting watch and really kept my attention the whole runtime, which is very difficult for someone like me. But what did you find that you liked and disliked about this one? I feel rewatching it. I've seen this movie multiple times and I think the more you watch it, the less of a wow factor it has. Um, and I know you could probably say that about any movie, but I don't like to rewatch movies all that often. And so for the most part, I'm still usually surprised even by my favorite movies of, of gain to experience them, especially ones that are a little more twisty. And this time around, it just sort of felt, it didn't have as much weight to it. And it felt a little too exposition heavy where every scene was, someone asking what's happening in another character exactly explaining what's happening. And, and maybe that's, you know, unfortunately a byproduct of having such a complicated narrative. There's a hilarious video out there of, of Christopher Nolan explaining what's happening on a whiteboard. And, you know, he's like, Oh, it's simple. And you know, it's 10 minutes later and he's still trying to explain the structure of it. So clearly it's not that simple. Um, but yeah, it didn't, I know like, I, I love this movie. I rank it very highly and it's so influential. It's it's unfortunately getting to the point where it's so influential that other movies are basically parodying it to lesser extents, not as a whole, but just taking elements from it. And it makes the original seem lesser in comparison because you've seen it done so many times, usually worse. And it, it just sort of... I don't know. Like if you ever rewatch like a classic Hollywood film that's been parodied and spoofed a million times. And by the time you watch it, you're just like, okay. And so it sort of feels like that a little bit, especially with Hans Zimmer's score where it's been so oft repeated, this big bombastic booming, uh, slow churning heart wrenching anxiety inducing score that's been done so many other times. So I don't know. This is a movie I'm sort of conflicted about, but one I, I know I still love and, remember the first time I watched it, how at all I was. Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it for me too, with like remembering how I felt the first time I watched it and how much I enjoyed it. And it kind of blew my my tiny little brain. But, you know, even upon second, third, fourth watch, it still excites me. And while I feel that, you know, we're basically following one man's journey with so many other secondary characters happening, I still feel somewhat of a connection with the other characters i wish there was a little bit more but i understand why there's not and we're similarly when we're talking about memento memento and you know the little um things that you're able to let go i feel that way about inception there's a few things little plot holes little things that are like oh, that doesn't make sense or that goes too far for me that i actually i'm like yeah i can oversee this because the rest of it is so good yeah, uh, I think this movie also probably contains the single best female performance in Ava Nolan's films from Marion Cotillard. Uh, she has this real darkness to her that's very unsettling. And then when we get the few flashbacks where it's, she's not Cobb subconscious, 
and she has this beautiful personality and we understand why he loves her so much. I think that works so well being able to show those differences and it sort of makes her even that much more threatening even as we're explained that it's Cobb's subconscious of her and his own fears basically being put onto her. This isn't her. This is him in the way he feels. And that's sort of, you know, one of the few exposition times that, that works when Ellen Page is sort of discovering all of that. Yeah, totally agree. I think this was one of the first films that I saw Mary Culture in and like fell in love with her, not just because of her beauty, because she is so beautiful, but also just because I loved how compelling her performance was and I remember watching this and trying to follow up to see what else she had been in and to watch anything else that came out with her in it I think we can't forget to to mention some set pieces the main one is the hall- hallway fight scene it's been included in every you know um, mashup things like that off repeat it but it still works so well there, there's a couple there's a couple moments that hold bit around the hallway fight sequence that works it's such a simple filmmaking technique where the set itself is rotating the camera is stationary and it works so well like i i can't get over it you know we've seen this done a million times both before and afterwards and this might be the pinnacle of this of this technique joseph gordon levitt really sells it yeah i super love the scene i think what's interesting is i love the way that it's played out because there's you know there are similar scenes both both before and and after this film that are similar to this. But what I really like about it is that it doesn't, to the characters, it doesn't feel like it's anything special or like crazy that's happening around them. It's just part of what what they're used to. Whereas I feel like in other action movies and things or films that use similar scenes, you know, it's viewed as this hyper-realized crazy event that's happening and it, it's super cool whereas this is just like a mundane rotating hallway that joseph gordon levitt's just walking through there's action happening through it but it's not it's not like matrix actiony it's more like him just getting his job done because he's got something to do i think it has to do with the fact that the way it's written too because his world is spinning because he's in the second dream layer because in the first dream layer, they're all in a van and the van is tumbling over. And so that causes his world to tumble around. So Joseph Gordon-Levitt understands what's happening in that sense. And the person he's fighting is a subconscious of uh, the person's dream that they're in. So this person isn't a real person. They're just a projection. So to both of them, it's nothing. And so it works so well because it's incorporated into the story and it doesn't need to be explained. It's just shown. And moments like that is when I think Christopher Nolan is as best. Yeah, for sure. I think he's really great at taking something we've seen before and kind of reinterpreting it. So viewing that scene, the way that it's shot and the way that it's written, I think is a, a fresh new take on some of similar scenes that we had seen before. All right, moving on. Our number one film is The Prestige from 2006. First time I tried to change the world, I was hailed as a visionary. Second time, I was asked politely to retire. (laughs) So here I am, enjoying my retirement. Nothing is impossible, Mr. Angier. What you want is simply expensive. If I were to build for you this machine, you would be presenting it merely as illusion. Well, if people actually believe the things I did on stage, they wouldn't clap that scream. I mean, 
think of sawing a woman in half. Mr. Angier, have you considered the cost of such a machine? Price is not an object. Perhaps not, but have you considered the cost? A mysterious story of two magicians whose intense rivalry leads them on a lifelong battle for supremacy, full of obsession, deceit, and jealousy with dangerous and deadly consequences. We actually both put this movie number two overall, and that's how it came up to be our number one because we had different number ones uh, and where we ranked our subsequent number ones, uh, the other person's number ones. This movie sort of checks off all the boxes. This is, you know, we talked about... um, basically pre and and post dark Knight. This is him. He needed to make the prestige in order to make the dark Knight because of the way he plays with time, the way he plays with characters, ambitions, motivations, and what they're revealing at certain times, what they're revealing in a flashback, what they're revealing in a flash forward and how Nolan chooses to reveal these moments at the precise time that we as a viewer need to watch them to understand everything that's going on at the same time. And the fact that we get both Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale playing two roles essentially works so well. And I think this is a movie that the more you rewatch, the better it gets. Whereas movies like Inception for me, the magic sort of wears off. This I feel is the complete opposite where you know how it ends makes you appreciate the lead up even more. So I would agree. I really love this film and i really thought that it was gonna be my number one but as i previously mentioned watching it back to back with inception inception i just kind of gave that one the nudge to, to take over the lead but i really enjoyed not only the main characters performances but all the secondary characters i absolutely love david bowie in this movie i'm not sure why i just do it just happens to be great for me um but i remember watching this movie um I had actually seen it. I had seen Batman Begins a few years after it had come out. And that was the beginning of my Christian Bale crush period. And so I remember going to Blockbuster and I wanted to have a Christian Bale marathon day. So I was finding all the Christian Bale movies I could find. And this was one of them. So watching this one, I was totally, you know, surprised with how much I loved it. Just the film, not just watching it because Christian Bale was in it, but because I was actually interested and it had me hooked. Um, I loved everything that happened in it. And I thought it was so interesting. And by the time it you got to the end, you know, you were like, so in awe of everything that just happened. You're like, oh my God, wait, really? Did that just happen? And something that I truly love about this movie is it tells you everything that's going to happen at the beginning. And by the time you get to the end, you've forgotten about that. And so when you watch it again the second time, you're like, wait a minute. I knew that was going to happen, but I was told it was going to happen and I didn't even listen. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's like in the first like five, 10 minutes, uh, Michael Caine's character says in regards to Christian Bale's character, he has a double. That's literally the whole, you know, Christian Bale storyline. He has a double. He has a twin. Um, so it's, it's so fascinating to sort of see that play out. And and you're right about the David Bowie character. He's he's on screen for such a short amount of time, but he brings the David Bowie-ness. I, I read where Nolan only wanted him. And if he couldn't get Bowie, he was planning to remove Tesla from the script completely and not have him. Uh, and I think that's a completely wise choice. And, and I believe Bowie actually at first was like, this guy's only on screen for like five minutes. Why am I going to do this movie? And then he talked with Chris, he talked with Christopher Nolan 
in regards to the importance of it. And he needed a character that had that aura of David Bowie because there's no one else like him that has a sort of mythicism about him. David Bowie lived lives of different people and convinced the world he was Ziggy Stardust. He convinced the world that he was not David Bowie. And that sort of otherness and etheralness really grounds itself into this character and is offset very nicely by Andy Serkis, who plays his assistant in one of his few non-motion capture performances at the time and has a sort of like, he's basically playing his Igor and, and brings that same energy to it that you would expect an Igor to have. Yeah, I really liked his performance too. Like you're just touching back about secondary characters. I also really loved Rebecca Hall's performance. I know we talked about not having strong female leads. And I think this is also one that should be mentioned as being like a strong female performance, not, not necessarily a, a strong female, but still I think she had strong qualities to her. And I think she was one of the better written female roles that Christopher Nolan has, has had. So I really appreciate that also. Yeah. That might be, you know, such a strong actor bringing as much as they can to what's on the page. I think a lot of the uh, emotional weight sort of falls on her to to sort of be the conduit for the audience to to feel sad or feel pain or loss or things like that. Uh, because for the most part, these two magicians are so methodical and so singular, singularly focused on their goal that they don't get to experience pain and loss and frustration and grief. And that's sort of passed over to the Rebecca Hall character. Um Likewise, I think they do a really good job with casting Hugh Jackman as being this showy guy. You know, Hugh Jackman's the Broadway guy. You get the Hugh Jazz Hands, as his nickname is. Um, and he brings that, you know, the, the two characters are different where Christian Bale's magician is the better magician. He is the harder working. He does better tricks. He, he does all that, but he can't sell them as well. And I think that sort of works. Christian Bale is a is a far superior actor of the two. He does so much more, but he doesn't have that natural sort of charisma that Hugh Jackman has, which is why I think they're, they're, he's so well cast in that. As he's there to be the charming person who isn't as good as me as a magician as Christian Bale is. He gets frustrated. He gets frustrated by the fact that he isn't as good as a magician, and that sort of seeps into him and, and his burning desires. He knows that he isn't as good, but he's going to one-up him by selling it better than him. Yeah, I really love the way that both of these guys play off each other. And I think you're completely right in saying that, you know, they play to their strengths uh, from their acting talent. Uh, the One of the things that I wish I could have relived watching this, the third or fourth time that I've seen this, was... Um, was trying to watch it this time and suspending my uh, concerns or skepticisms about Christian Bale's double or his twin, this, this guy who's, you know, made up in with hats and glasses and beards. I feel you can totally tell that it's Christian Bale. And I, I kept trying to think, now when I first watched it, did I think that? I couldn't remember so i wish i could have relived that to see if how well that played for me for me i think honestly i didn't know i didn't understand that the first time i watched it I, it wasn't until the second time that i realized I was like wait he's a twin where it kind of really threw me for a loop for the most part i think nolan does a good job of of knowing that if 
this character is made prominent enough, the audience will catch on too early. So for the most, he doesn't talk ever in, in any scene where there's other people. Um, he doesn't linger on his face for too much. The fact that he kind of gives him, you know, uh, a bloated puffy cheek sort of gives him that sort of like older alcoholic look to him, I think works in sort of distracting you. Uh, overall, I think, I think it works for me. If I had seen it for the first time and didn't, and didn't know the twist, I, it would have, it still would have got me. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have known it. Um, and I think maybe the only reason why I didn't know the first time I watched it is because I watched it, not truly being able to understand film as a whole and understanding what Nolan was trying to do with it. Yeah. I I wish I could remember how I felt. And I feel like perhaps maybe his character in his um, screen time is so minimal and so overshadowed by other characters and events that are happening over at the same time that you're not even thinking about looking at him. And maybe it's perhaps because I know to look at him that I'm trying to focus on him and, and see if he does, you know, look similar to Christian Bale's character. So, you know, it's just something I wish I could remember and, and wanted to see how you felt about it. Well, there you have it. That is our list of the ranking of Christopher Nolan films. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise and wisdom and fandom. Yeah, no problem. I, I love Christopher Nolan and I'm so excited and dying in anticipation to see Tenet. So I hope it doesn't let me down. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited for it too. We might do something in regards to talking about. It. I don't know if it'll be a full episode or, or just including it. I'm very excited, and I am not seeing this movie anywhere except on the big screen. So when it is safe to go to the movie theaters, that is when I'm watching this movie. Hands down, you are 100% accurate and right there. I'll be with you. ContraZoom is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. I'd like to thank Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music, and of course my guest Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. Follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. Tell me, what are your favorite Christopher Nolan films? Do our rankings match up with yours? Do you feel differently about where we play certain things? Let me know. Send me an email at ContraZoomPod at gmail.com, and I will share responses on a future episode. It would also be a great help if you would rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts as it will help us grow and find new listeners. Thank you. How you first? Oh man, I'm completely screwing this intro up. <laughs>